You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Ray Yu. And we are here today with a special author interview with Jessica Kim, the author of Stand Up Yumi Chung, a middle grade novel about a young Korean American girl who dreams of becoming a stand up comedian against the wishes of her immigrant parents um, that just came out this past week. Uh, Rira and I both read the book, and I'd say we're we're fans, right, Rira? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely fans. Actually, it's been a very long time since uh, we've had an author interview where we've both read the book. Usually, it's one or the other. So, uh, I'm really glad that both of us were able to finish the book and talk to Jessica. Yeah, um, she joins us all the way from her home in San Diego. Um, again, Rira and I re- are both recording remotely in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so through the magic of internet, we're able to bring you this interview. But before we get to that, Rira, remind us what we're reading for the month of March. We are reading The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Zhukadar. I've just started the book. I've read the first chapter, so um, not very deep in yet, but uh, looking forward to discussing that with you in a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, yeah. But yeah, we had a really great chat with Jessica. We talked to her about her journey as an author, about her book, and Rira even gets to share a couple of her favorite Korean dad jokes. I didn't know she had it in her, but... Uh... What can I say? <laughs> I, I love puns. <laughs> Um, So please enjoy our interview with author Jessica Kim. And we are here with Jessica Kim, the author of Stand Up Yumi Chung, a middle grade novel that just came out um, this past week. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are you doing? Um, this is supposed to be your launch week. I know you're supposed to go on book tour this week um, or throughout the month and a lot of stuff's been getting canceled. How's that been going for you? You know, it's a little bit of a bummer. Um, obviously, uh, you know, we always dream of this day from the very beginning and we never I didn't have the imagination to dream that it would ever happen during a global pandemic. And so, <laughs> you know, life happens and you got to react with it. So while I would have loved to be on tour and meeting um, booksellers and kids, um, you know, it's, it is what it is and we're going to make the most of it. So I'm just happy that the book is out there. And uh, if you want it, you can still order it. And so I've been getting actually a good number of bored kids emailing me <laughs> since it came out yesterday. So yeah, yeah. I, I saw the uh, activity sheets that you posted oh, on yes. your social media. <laughs> and I think I think that is a very, very clever way uh, to get kids engaged, especially parents, because like with parents, they're having struggles with homeschooling their kids and it give, it gives them a break. So I thought it was really creative. Oh, and, you. um, and you're also giving away book plates, yeah. right? Like signed book plates. Yeah. I mean, I'm a former teacher and I'm an Asian mom. So, you know, <laughs> if ever there is an opportunity to make homework, I will find it. And so it was, uh, kind of, 
fun to be able to create some activities. You know, it's like using an, a muscle that I haven't used in a long time, my teacher muscle. So, um, you know, I thought it'd be kind of cool because I know a lot of parents like me, um, they, the, you just got our kids just found out Friday day of that they're going to be home for a month with absolutely no instruction and, you know, for for some parents, no training. And so I thought if there's anything I could do to help, um, that's one thing I could do. So it's been pretty well received. So I'm really happy about it. And I really love the idea that, you know, they can uh, write in and, and receive something for their efforts. <laughs> well, you're doing everyone a service because I feel like this is the first time a lot of parents and their kids have been in such close proximity, not on vacation. Oh, yeah. Like forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been, there, there's only so much TikTok <laughs> can do, you know? Well, a lot of my friends are young parents, too. So, like, oh. they have, like, little ones. So there's only so many times you can watch Frozen 2. Right. Before. Oh, yeah. Luckily, my kids are a little older, yes. so we're out of that range. But we've been watching lots of Marvel. <laughs> so. <laughs> So this is your debut novel and public getting published is definitely a very long journey. Uh, can you just tell us about how you started writing? Like, were you always interested in it or was it something that came later in your life? You know, I, I wasn't even that kid that really wrote a lot to tell you the truth. Um, I guess, you know, in high school I did do some journalism, you know, and I don't think I really wrote or read much in college outside of the required reading. So I re- this was kind of a later in life thing. Um, so uh, let's see. It wasn't until I started a personal blog. Um, I had just moved to New York City uh, with my then 17-month-old baby and my husband who was working 100-hour weeks. And so it was really kind of boring and lonely and I didn't have a car and I was just you know, kind of in this new season of life. And so because I was so homesick, I started this blog and it was like just a mommy blog, nothing special, but um, I just really enjoyed it. <laughs> I was like updating near daily. People were wondering, are you okay, Jess? Um, but uh, the readership kind of grew beyond my friends and family and people started encouraging me to like, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. And so that was kind of the first time it ever entered my brain that I could even um, be an author. So, you know, as Asian Americans, it's not, it's not really something you see much of. Do you guys know any authors in your circles? Yeah, we, we do know a couple in our circle, but, um, I think that's because we live in Los Angeles (laughs) and, and people wear a lot of hats. Uh, yeah, I could I could totally understand the whole like oh it's not writing isn't something that Asian American families really really push right. uh, their kids to excel at uh, because I majored in writing oh, so okay. I like totally I totally get that. Um, so I'm kind of a lone creative black sheep in my family. Um, let's see, my husband's a doctor, my sister's a doctor, my sister-in-law's a doctor, my brother-in-law's a doctor. Like we have so many MDs in our family. And um, yeah, so the creative thing was kind of just something I did on the side because um, I was a teacher for a long time, like I said earlier. Uh, so it wasn't until we moved back to California my husband started working, my kids were in school, and I kind of had to be, like have a little crisis, like, like a little identity crisis of like, <gasps> I'm not ready to go back to work, work, but like, what do I, what is something that I've always wanted to do? And like, I decided to finally pursue it. So I literally Googled like, how to write a book <laughs> 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 so from the very beginning. Um, so yeah, I joined a uh, Society for Book 
uh, S- the SCBWI. I started going to critique groups. I started taking some writing classes here at our local um, university and started kind of making friends in the community. And uh, yeah, years later, after a lot of work, uh, I was able to sell my first book. Yay! <laughs> Congratulations. Yay. And it's something that we see a lot in, in especially in the world of, of um, authors, is a lot of people, a lot of authors, this is like their their second career. You know, we, we've had um, mm-hmm. Henry Lian on who wrote the Peace Proud Chen series and he used to be a lawyer. Right. Um, a lot of best-selling authors, like they didn't start writing till like their 40s mm-hmm. or later. Mm-hmm. So writing is something that anyone can do at any time, mm-hmm. but like taking it seriously, I think that's the key to, you know, getting to where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like, you know, finishing the book and like the process of getting it to auction? Yeah, so this is actually my second full-length manuscript that I've written. Um, I wrote another, uh, my first one was actually a young adult novel, which will never, ever, ever see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you never, you never know. I know... I know that Marie Lu, uh, she just published a book, and that was like one of the first oh. manuscripts that she worked on. So don't, don't never say never. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's kind of like the mother dough of like what created Yumi. So I really want to write about the second generation experience. I really want to write about what it's like to be born and raised here in America, but have immigrant parents. So if you go in bookstores, libraries, you'll find some Asian-ish books, but they're usually written from like that first generation perspective. So there wasn't a whole lot about just like normal kids like me who, you know, share this bicultural identity. And so I really wanted to explore those themes, um, specifically, uh, the theme of kind of wanting to be creative, wanting to go a different path than what your parents wanted um, for you, uh, especially because I was grappling with those those same feelings um, myself. Um, of course, not from my parents at this point in my life, but really uh, kind of that upbringing that's planted so deep inside that, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's too risky. Oh, there's, you know, such a s- small percentage that you'll actually make it. You know, like the, those kind of things were so deeply um part of my psyche, I was really kind of like fighting with myself, like, oh, but I really want to try it or, oh, but, oh, you know, and I, as you know, it's like a years long process where you're kind of toiling and querying and writing where you don't really see much but rejection. And so that's really tough if you've been raised in an Asian American household, like, where are the results? You know, like, why haven't you written more? Why aren't you published? You know, like those things can be very difficult to overcome. So it was like this inner dialogue that I was having with myself. And in its first iteration, it was about um, a teenage girl wanting to be um, a chef to go into culinary school instead of college. And so I wrote it. Uh. Yeah, right. Um, So I have this fascination with uh, Asian American, specifically Asian American women being where they're not really supposed to be. And so I love that idea of these forbidden places. Um, So I wrote that novel and I queried it and, you know, it it didn't go anywhere. um, And I was really devastated. Um, It's it's so unlike anything I've ever done in that um, you could work really hard, but it doesn't really necessarily pay off. Like there's so much, you know, that it has to do with the market demands or what agents are looking for X, Y, Z. And it wasn't like studying for, you know, the GMAT or something where you, you know, it was, it, it's not that kind of um, venture. So I actually almost gave up or I did give up. I didn't write for like about a month and a half. And I said, okay, I'm done with this. Like, I'm going to go like 
pursue something achievable, I'm going to like go do CrossFit or something. <laughs> like I'm going like, to do something where I put in the effort and something happens. Um, but, you know, I really missed it. I really loved writing. And so um, I was walking around Dolores Park with my husband in San Francisco and we were on a trip and I just couldn't stop talking about this novel that, you know, like, ah, you know, I was getting some feedback um, that it was sounding a little young which at the time I was just so offended by. But then once I got over like the sting, um, I started kind of listening to that feedback. Like, oh, does it sound young? Maybe, maybe I'll write middle grade. And then it kind of turned into, well, middle graders don't really work in the kitchen. That won't work. Uh, what would be like the Asian mom's worst nightmare? And I was like, oh my gosh, a comedian. Because <laughs> 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 at the time, Ali, yeah, um, Ali Wong is blowing up. And, you know, and so it was on my mind and, I started kind of researching that and, and then I discovered comedy camps were a thing. Who knew? And so uh, that kind of like quickly tumbled into an idea. It quickly tumbled into a manuscript. The first one, it took me about a year and a half to write my YA. This one wrote itself in honestly about like six or seven months. I took a month to revise um, and it was out. Uh, sent it out to query right after that. So it was a very different experience writing middle grade in YA. So um, perhaps my internal age is actually 11 and not 16. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I knew that this book was for me as soon as I read the first chapter. Ah! There were just so so many elements in the first chapter where I was like, oh my God, this this seems so familiar. And for those of you who have not read the book, uh, the book opens up with Yumi uh, at a Korean hair salon and she wants to get a pixie cut. But uh, her mother says, no, you're going to look like a boy. So we're going to get the same perm that you always get every month or every every summer. And uh, and then there's and then there's like her mom bragging about her children with another mom bragging about her sons. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just like this. Like, this is a scene from my childhood. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I can smell the, like... The perm solution. Um, mag- yeah. The magic straight solution. The digital pama, the setting pama. <laughs> and it mentions BTS. And I was like, oh, man, Jessica Kim is, like, after my heart. And... <laughs> Gotta put in BTS. Gotta put in the punk sun. Who's who's your bias, by Mine? the way? Oh, so since I am like Nuna Nation, I'm a little old to be like their like heartthrob. So I really love RM because I think he's a writer at heart. I I knew yeah. that your bias would be RM. <laughs> I. I, I like there's a lot of Korean authors on Twitter uh-huh. and a lot of them seem to be geared towards RM because he's like so uh, intellectual and he's like a really good writer. When he talks um, about his creative process, I completely identify with him and he talks about, you know, his first draft, what didn't make it, what, oh, I really could wish I could have added this. It, that's like my heart. So I totally I have a connection with him, but he doesn't know it yet. Yeah. So yeah, so I was really happy that uh like I was able to identify with Yumi, like even though I'm like definitely not 11 years old, right. but uh there were a lot of things that I really um you know found relatable. Uh Yumi goes to a private school mm-hmm. and 
um, because her family, uh, because her family is blue collar, they run a restaurant. Uh, they pressure her to do well academically. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I feel like a lot of Asian American kids uh, now and a generation before us, they do grapple with that. Yeah. And definitely with like the SSATs. Like I actually took that. Ah! And, uh, <laughs> like my parents wanted me to go to uh, like a, a very, very white private school. And unfortunately, I'm not as smart as Yumi, <laughs> so I did not get in. Um, but... Yeah, I like one thing that I really loved about your book was the fact that even though uh, Yumi's parents are pushing her to succeed academically, they aren't tiger parents. No, they not. seem they seem to show their love and affection in different ways. And I just wanted to ask, like, how you fleshed out that relationship? How did you build? Uh, like like have this relationship be something that's not stereotypical yeah that was actually probably the hardest part because I really wanted to get it right Um, but in my initial first drafts I was so obsessed with breaking stereotypes that I actually just like wrote the opposite of what people would expect so in in western media Asian women are always portrayed as kind of cold tiger mom-ish you know unfeeling and so in the first rendition, iteration, uh, Mrs. Chang is like extremely gregarious and very loving and whatever. And I was like trying to break that stereotype. But when I read it, I was like, you know what? She doesn't sound like any mom that I know. <laughs> like that doesn't feel authentic to me. Like she had no accent, you know, and just was like hilarious in, in, a, in a very Western way. And I was like, you know, that's not it. That's not it. So in my rewrite, I actually wrote the character of Mrs. Chung the most out of all the other characters. And um, for her, I realized it's not about breaking stereotypes because that's still letting the Western perception kind of force your hand at like uh, the way things are represented. I just needed to show her as I know her, you know? And so um, in the first few pages, you might get a very strong tiger mom feel because she is kind of talking a lot about academics and, you know, in, in, she may come off as a little bit like someone you might have seen before, but I really worked hard to kind of show different dimensions of who she is throughout the book. So by the end, I hope that readers will be rooting for Mrs. Chang and being able to see her tenderness and her sacrifice and her own version of how she loves her daughter. Um, And I thought that was the most um, important part for me because growing up, um, especially here in America, and seeing, you know, love portrayed in that very Western that way with the kisses and the hugs and the I love yous. And <laughs> you think you look at your own parents, you're like, what is wrong with them? Like, why can't my parents just be normal? My parents don't understand me like they don't know me, you know, and that's very much like how Yumi feels in the very beginning. But I think through her journey, she kind of comes to understand her parents a little bit more. And I think she becomes a little more bilingual and bicultural in the way that she accepts um, and understands the depth of her her family's love and the fierce um, affection that they have for her. And so uh, I think it, it is kind of a journey of self-acceptance, of understanding that there are many ways to show love and it doesn't always look like um, the way it does on TV. And that was kind of like where I was going with uh, their relationship. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the book, and it like, like I almost cried reading the scene. Um, 
And I'm sure a lot of readers will agree. Uh, it's a scene where Yumi sees her father smoking oh, in the alley yes. behind the restaurant after a really, really rough night. And it's it's like such a great scene because Yumi is able to have this heart to heart with her father and they're able to open up and communicate and uh, and she finds out that her father also had a dream mm-hmm. and he had to defer it so that uh, so that his children would be able to accomplish greater things. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it was it was definitely a powerful scene oh, that for was, me. Yeah, was, one of my favorites. Was, was it difficult writing writing that scene? It seems like something that you would have to rewrite yeah. over and over Actually, again to get no, right. That one um, was pretty much as it was in, in its initial drafts. And I'll tell you, this is a... I, I do hear a lot of people ask me about that particular scene. And I think it's because it comes from a very, very intimate and deep place uh, within myself. Um, so uh, I lost my father to cancer when I was, or when he was 36 years old. So I was, what was I? I was seven years old at the time. And so I don't have very many memories of him. So even writing a father in the uh, novel was a little bit tricky for me, but um, I do have a memory. He used to own like a kage, like a, a little produce store. Um, and when he was stressed, um, he would go outside and smoke cigarette because he wasn't a big smoker. It was like when you smelled the cigarette, you knew he was kind of um, having heavier thoughts. And I, as, even as a young child, I remember kind of sensory, you know, like just smelling that smell and that feeling. Um, and so I was so um, I was so glad I could incorporate that memory into this book. Um, and the other uh, influence is my father-in-law. Um, he is a commercial painter, worked a blue collar job his whole life from Korea, came with $20 in his pocket, you know, the story, right? And uh, made um, a life for his kids. Um, and I think it wasn't actually until I completed my first manuscript. I, n- I never told my um, in-laws that I was writing. Like it was just my little secret. I didn't want them to know. I don't know why I didn't want them to know. I guess I just oh I can I can think of a, a couple of reasons why you didn't want them to know. <laughs> I didn't want them asking me about it and why is it taking so you know I just didn't tell them. Um, so it wasn't until I finished uh, my YA manuscript and I was sending it out that I finally told them I was you know writing and I I was so surprised. They're fairly traditional. So I was so surprised that he was so like moved and proud. It wasn't until then that I realized, oh my gosh, I think in another life, my father-in-law would have been a writer too, because we had this like connection, you know, and I, I started thinking back to all the, the cards he'd ever written me, all the photos he'd ever captioned and all the poems that he writes like on his spare time um, for his alumni webpage. And it's like, oh my goodness, he's a writer at heart. He just never had the opportunity to go there. And that was really very much um, played a part in my writing of Mr. Chung and his deferred uh, dreams as well. So yeah, we don't really think of our parents as people who have like had to forego things. We just think of them as providers, especially when we're 11, right? And I think that's like that critical moment where you see them as human beings, breaking down, crying, having a tough time, second guessing themselves. And, you know, these are all things that Yumi sees for the very first time. So it's uh, yeah, it's a gripping scene, but I think um, they're able to kind of see each other, you know, hear each other for the first time. So, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Oh, no problem. <laughs> Another important dimension to the story is Yumi's relationship with her older sister. And um, we talked about, um, Rira and I are both older siblings, so we don't really have the experience of what it's like to have someone have to, you know, 
um, catch up to our um, prodiginess. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, my my cousins are like close to genius level IQ. So like oh. I think I think I sort of have an idea of of having <laughs> to live up to that level of like genius. But uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, no, um, yeah, my sister, I actually have an older sister. She's only a year older than me, though, so she's not 10 years older than me. But sometimes she thinks she is. But <laughs> she uh, is a doctor. She's an MD. And, you know, you know the way the Asian parents brag. They'll brag a lot about the brag, braggable kids. So it's like, oh, this one's a doctor. And, oh, Jessica's really nice, too. Yeah, you know, so there's definitely, like, a skipping over that happens. And I very much wanted to write about it. So that's Yumi. Poor Yumi. <laughs> Yeah, what I really liked about Yumi and Yuri's uh, like sisterhood was that even though Yuri is someone who is part of Mensa and went to college at a very young age, I really liked her growth as someone who you know really wants to figure out who she is and follow her dreams. And this is something that Yumi is is trying to do. She's trying to figure out who she is and try to bridge that gap between. Uh, being a daughter of immigrants and trying to find her place in the world. And um, I, you know, I really, really like that. Um, Like, it was, was that also something that uh, you thought about when you first started writing was, did you give Yumi a sister, like right from the beginning? Yes, Yumi always had a sister, um, an older sister. Um, So if you kind of notice um, Yumi's life, I very much intentionally kind of gave her two sets of everything. So she kind of has an American set and a Korean set. So she has her parents on one side, they're Korean immigrants. And then she has like her third parent, Yuri or Yuri. And she is kind of her American parent. So <laughs> she she has Ginny <laughs> on one side, Ginny's her Korean friend. And then she has Felipe and Sienna on the other side, her American friends. So she has you know, Jasmine Jasper is her American comedy teacher, but her Mrs. Pak is uh, the Korean side. So I wanted to kind of have those two sides uh, give her strength and value in their own ways and kind of uh, feed into this bicultural experience that she has as a Korean American. And so I really needed um, you me to have like a, a Korean parent. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where Yuri steps in. And, you know, then I could talk a little bit about uh, the values that immigrants have and how they're not necessarily born out of materialism and bragging rights, but it's also a security thing too. And that's something that you maybe can't realize when you're 11 years old and you just want to do comedy and your parent, you don't understand why your parents are supporting you. It's because they've lived here in this country and they know, you know, that <laughs> the odds of that happening are, are very slim. And so it's, it's an interesting discussion. I don't think anyone's right or wrong, but I think it's um, a more fuller uh, discussion when you have both sides of your life, your identity input, putting input into your life, you know? So that was um, that, yeah, that was, a really fun way. I didn't, I didn't know Yuri was going to drop out of medical school until, until I got to that scene. I was like, Oh shoot, she's going to quit. Is that a spoiler? Is that a spoiler? Oops, one? Oh, sorry. I, I don't, I don't, re- I don't really think so. It happened. It happens pretty early in the book and oh. you kind of get a feeling that she will, because of course, like, you know, like a lot of, a lot of like high achieving Asians, they they do like kind of break their immigrant parents' heart. Oh yeah, uh, 
yeah, it's like you live up to so many expectations and uh, like at some point that's, you know, that's not your dream. And, you know, you have to like figure out what you're going to do for yourself. It's a very, very common thing that a lot of um, Asian Americans go through on a daily basis. Um, well, that's something that your book does really well, which is really clearly display the the tension of how immigrant kids have to figure out how to live for mm-hmm. themselves because they've lived so long for their parents mm-hmm. and their dreams. And, and I know that's something that a lot of kids deal with their parents, but especially it's especially like heightened for immigrant kids because like literally your parents did put their dreams on hold mm-hmm. for you. And so how do you pay that back? And what does that look like? You know, it, it, may, it might not look like what they wanted it to look like, but you being able to pursue your dreams is proof that they were able oh, to Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you guys, but people in my my peer group, um, a lot of Korean American, Asian American kids did go to law school, did go to med school, did get their MBAs. And now a lot of like maybe half are like super unhappy. And a lot of people, <laughs> including myself, like uh, branched out and did something that we've always wanted to do now that we've kind of bought the house, have the kids and, you know, have a little bit of, uh, you know, did did the immigrant kid part are, are kind of feeling a little bit like, well, what would my life look like if I got to do what I really want to do, you know? And so, I don't know. It's a very interesting conversation. Um, It's a very specific kind of burden that children of immigrants carry (laughs) of like feeling this indebtedness, like this uh, burden to make it all worth it, you know? And so. And Yumi feels it like even a little, even stronger because she sees her family's restaurant in like financial uh, strain yes and and a lot of a lot of like Korean immigrant families they run restaurants they run dry cleaners mm-hmm. and it is a struggle every single day and I don't really see that a lot in uh, middle grade and YA novels in general uh-huh. um, because like I, I feel like with a lot of children's literature um, people kind of want to shelter their kids and uh, kind of keep things light, but kids notice a lot more than people realize. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think I think Yumi feels that pressure uh, to not let her parents down uh, because of because of that pressure of of like their financial situation. Um, so one of the things that I really liked about the book was the motto. The only failure is not trying. Oh yeah, that is a that is a mantra that shows up repeatedly in the book, and it's actually originally given uh, by Mrs. Park, the Hagwon teacher, mm-hmm. um, who's telling you uh, who's telling you me that she is second guessing herself on test results. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole like fa- the only failure is not trying is something that. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but that is not a mantra that I grew up with <laughs> with all. my parents. <laughs> my parents, it is my my parents. Like the it was the complete opposite. Right. Their ma- their mantra was: if you're going to fail, don't even try. Right, or, totally. Don't don't try unless you aim to be the best. Yeah. And <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, why do you think? Uh, this message of the only failure is not trying is so important to young readers who are going to be reading your books. I think um, just where I am in my life, I think 
um, as I was grappling with whether or not to write seriously or not, I was thinking to myself, oh, don't, it looks like if I had gone by the, the, you know, immigrant motto, I wouldn't have ever tried because the odds of making it are so slim. However, there's something inside me that always knew I would regret it if I didn't at least try, you know, and I think it's that fear of failure. And this is not immigrant child specific. This is like everybody understands, you know, fear of failure. And I think especially now, you know, I'm a mom raising kids in this generation, this idea of perfectionism and doing everything just right is maybe even worse than it was when we were younger, just because of social media and, you know, the the kind of things they're up against um, in this economy. It's just totally different. And so I feel like kids are even more timid to kind of be their true authentic si- selves, to try something different, to go outside um, and make up your own ideas. I think it's a very... It, it's a very timely message and also something that means a lot to me. I still tell myself all the time, <laughs> you know, that it's okay if I don't get it right the first time, let's keep trying, get back up, you know, and um, just, yeah, go out there and try it, I think is is the truly the message I want kids to come away with when they finish reading my book. Because I think it's one that so many of us um, need to hear all the time, right? So, yeah, I love that it came from Mrs. Pock, the most creative. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you go to Hogwarts growing up? You know, I worked at one. I worked at one. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a young teacher and I had to make um, money for the summer or whatever, I used to work at uh, a Hogwarts. But it wasn't Mrs. It was actually her name was originally Mrs. Park because the actual Hogwarts I used to work for was Mrs. Park. But because I needed to make it um, pack attack, she became Pock. But anyway, um, yeah, she was just as scary as she. I described her. We were all so scared of her, even the teachers. But she was like five feet tall. She had like these little glasses. But, um, I, you know, oh I'm, I think I'm a little bit more Americanized. And so I remember the first time I walked into her office, I called her by her first name. <laughs> and everyone just stared at me. It was horrible. Yeah, I was so embarrassed. Thereafter, I only called her Mrs. Park. But anyway, that was my (laughs) funny story. Um, so like what I found really impressive was that you were able to, uh, come up with all of these comedic materials and they sounded like an 11 year old, you know, like it wasn't like, I I mean, obviously you're not going to have an 11 year old come up with raunchy jokes uh, that, that like Ali Wong (laughs) and, uh, like other Asian American comics, uh, do in their do in their stand up. Yeah. Uh, so, like, can you tell us about how you came up with the jokes? Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I have an entire notebook full of like a graveyard of jokes that didn't make it into the book, <laughs> and so it was not done on the first try. <laughs> trust me. Um, it was. Uh, it was actually probably one of the hardest things about writing a, a book about comedy was as a non comedian coming up with jokes. But I do think I benefited greatly from um, you know. 10 years in the classroom with a bunch of, you know, preteen kids and what they think is funny, you know, it's like very, uh, you know, natural to me. So, you know, I have a 10 year old daughter, so I I know the kind of things that they think are funny, but, um, yeah, definitely took a lot of tinkering, a lot of rough drafts and, uh, throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. So I, I'm so glad that they were funny to you in the end. (laughs) I guess that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, I do have some Korean dad jokes on the side, oh and uh, I think that you would really like them. Marvin's <laughs> gonna, be, Marvin's gonna be so lost because he doesn't know Korean. Okay, but sorry, uh, but I, <laughs> I'm ready. You're ready? Okay. I'm ready for it. All right, Rira. All right. 
What do you call a news reporter who interviews the son? The son, like a, the other? Uh, no, like sun, S-U-N. Oh, sun. okay, in the sky? A uh, what? Yeah, in the sky. Uh, a heady potter. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, I love it. <laughs> uh, and then I'll do, I'll do one more. Uh, what country has four arms? Oh, I've never heard this one. Mm, I don't know which one. Uh, Nepal. <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was that was Rira's like two, <laughs> two jokes. Co- Korean jokes. Yeah, that's that's it. Well, I, mean, I am not a comedian. <laughs> well, I mean, Jessica laughed, so it must have I been did. Funny. They were funny too. <laughs> you know, people have been asking me if I've ever done stand up or I've ever done improv, and the truth is, I've never done it because I'm too scared. But I will because I wrote a whole book about not being scared. So one day, I hope to do it. Um, did you guys know there's an Asian com- comedy troupe in LA? Have you guys ever gone to see Asian AF? Yeah, we're actually friends with the uh, the creator. Oh, awesome! So, yeah. yeah, he's actually um, like we have a podcast called uh, the K Drama Podcast, oh. part of our pot potluck um, uh-huh. collective, and he's one of the hosts for it. Oh, so. no kidding! I have to check yeah. it out. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to go. I I would love to just. Uh, watch a few times <laughs> yeah once this whole um pandemic thing dies down yeah. before i start up shows again so i mean um you're pretty close you're in san diego right yeah so, it's not far yeah. yeah it's not too far um before we head out mm-hmm. um i did want to ask um just because we mentioned about that first chapter and the, the perm story um what was your worst haircut Worst haircut. I mean, we all rocked the bowl haircut, did we not? I actually, I actually did it. Yeah. Was it only cool in the eighties? I don't know. No, no. There are people who definitely have it now. So (laughs) yeah, I had the um, the they called it meimeito, which is like little sister hair, which is kind of that unisex kind of. Oh my god. Kind of like a how to describe it? Is it? It's not really a bob, but it's like a bob type of haircut what age were you when this haaircut happened probably like three or four. Oh, i love it i do yeah. have a really bad perm picture on my website so <laughs> i think i was in the sixth grade i had like the yumi perm so that was <laughs> i have so many to choose from it's hard to just choose one what about you rira what's your worst haircut um i was very very lucky because my mom uh had pity on me uh, <laughs> Grow like I have. Um, I mean, not so much anymore. But growing up, I had very, very straight hair. Oh. So um, yeah, I just pretty much stuck with my natural hair. And um, I think I got my first perm in like like late middle school. Oh, I wow. really, I really wanted one for some reason. I think I was really bored of having straight hair. Um, and it wasn't. It wasn't like an ajima pama, but uh-huh. it was like. I didn't know how to curl my hair, so I got a digital perm. Oh, nice! And it it gave me like really soft, uh, soft curls. So oh, my mom, crazy. my mom did her research. She didn't want me to uh, look like an ajima, so I'm really <laughs> grateful for that. Also, she was very like open about hair colors because oh. I think in high in high school I had like scarlet, like dark scarlet hair at one point. Oh, wow! You were cool. and. And like um, when I moved out here, I did I, I did like the typical thing of streaking your hair. Uh-huh. Like I had like red, 
Uh, I, had, I had like one red streak and I was wondering like if my mom was going to hate it. But I went to go visit her and she was like, oh, I like your hair. Like you should do rainbow colors. Oh, nice. So she's, she's very, very open about it. I don't know if it's because she's seen like K-pop on television and <laughs> she's just gotten really used to it. But yeah, I don't really have a bad haircut story. Oh, Sorry, oh. fans. You got out <laughs> easy. Yeah, I did. <laughs> o- only, only in that part though. I I went to Hagwon since I was like six years old, so oh um, I did not. I did not get away with. Did you, you have know. a scary? That was the only. Oh, uh, did I have a scary Hagwon teacher? Yeah. Um, a lot of them were very scary. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I had I had one teacher who, um, they were kind of draconian. They. Uh, they used like a ruler to smack our um, palms if we actually no it wasn't it wasn't if you got an answer wrong but if uh-huh. like if other people in your class um, like if they got it wrong they were the only ones who didn't get hit everybody else would get hit oh wow. my <laughs> goodness like psychological <laughs> warfare oh my goodness of course of course I'm I'm. Like I, I'm kind of a snitch, so I told my parents, and nice. they're like, "You're not, go- you're not going back there." So they took me to another hagwon where there were, uh, there were white teachers. Oh, so they were, mu- <laughs> so they were much more lenient. Um, yeah, I have a lot of hagwon stories. Uh, we definitely don't have time to go into them, but man, you I have. You write a book. Like, this is hilarious. I have some. I have some war flashbacks, <laughs> y'all. It's it's bad. <laughs> I love it. Well, Riri, do you have anything else? Or? Um, yeah, I, I, I have one last question. Um, and it's, so a lot of people are cooped up because, because of coronavirus and a lot of, um, a lot of writers, you know, they're kind of stuck in their house and writing is probably the only thing they can do in this situation. Um, and it's really hard to keep up motivation. So I just wanted to ask like what your, uh, like writing tips are during a pandemic like oh to tell you the truth i haven't written since the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) i'm like not very helpful here um but i am reading which i think is also a form of writing so i'm definitely doing a lot of reading with my kids which is really nice um so i i just think at this time we just need to be kind to ourselves and if we don't write, I think that's okay too. I just think we need to just uh, focus on being healthy and uh, connecting with those we love, and that's kind of my first priority right now. So don't worry if you want if you're writing to escape. I think that's fun too. But if you're not into it right now, neither am I. So <laughs> we're in it together. <laughs> I think everything's shutting down now anyway, so there's no big uh, time crunch or anything. So take it easy. Yeah, curl up with the book. Might I suggest Stand Up Yumi Chung by Jessica Kim? Boop, boop. Yeah, <laughs> available everywhere. <laughs> What's next for you in terms of promoting the book? Are you doing a lot of online things and interviews? Uh, I believe a lot of things will tr- uh, be transitioned online once everyone figures out what's going on. Um, yeah, I was supposed to do a bunch of things, um, but it looks like um, I know for sure LA Times Festival Books is postponed to October. So I'm slated to be there on a panel. And um, got a few things um, webinar wise that I will post to my Twitter and Instagram. So I'm at Jess Kim Writes um, on both platforms. So yeah, stay tuned. Everything's kind of in flux right now, but we hope to get you know at least uh, online very soon. 
Well, thanks again, Jessica, for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Thanks. All right. And that was Jessica Kim, again, the author of Stand Up Yumi Chung, available now at booksellers everywhere. And that'll also do it for this episode of Books and Boba. That was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was. It was uh, It was very lively and very needed, considering that we are trapped in our houses and social interaction seems <laughs> to be very, like, very rare. So I'm really glad that uh, we were all able to talk uh, yeah. and have a good time. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm glad we were able to bring some social interaction to all of your houses today. Um, it's uh, it's it's going to get tough out there. Uh, we're just waiting right now for the call to uh, lock down LA, but uh, we're going to keep reading and we're going to be talking about books. And um, please join us. If there has ever been a good time to just sit down and read a book, it is now. All right. Yeah. Well, we will see you at the end of this month when we talk about the map of salt and stars yeah thanks everyone bye thanks for listening to books and boba this podcast was hosted by marvin yue and rira yu and edited and produced by marvin yue follow the book club on twitter and instagram by going to at books and boba and engage with us on goodreads on our goodreads group you can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Mm, But we're still here. We're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app. And we're getting tired of proving-